let's uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, our Lord, we just uh, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to worship you. Lord, we uh, we thank you that uh, you have given us the the promise of your uh, just all powerful uh, sovereignty over uh, all things that go on in this world. That Lord, we can often look around and, and uh, see the just the uh, the chaos, the disorder, the evil that happens in this world, and, um, and be anxious. And God, we just um, we rest in the promise that you are sovereign over all these things and that you are uh, working them together uh, for good, that you are bringing about your own glory. Um, Lord, we just um, we, uh, we pray that you would be with us as we continue this study of the Holy Spirit. Lord, just the, the marvelous work that, that you do in in the, the salvation of sinners, um, in the overcoming of the hardness of our hearts. Um, God, it is uh, truly our only hope uh, as we are just by nature so set against you. And um, God, I just pray that we would uh, just truly uh, take hold of these truths, that it would uh, impact our lives, that it would uh, cause us to have a, a right view of ourselves, a right view of our own salvation, and a right view as we uh, as we seek to uh, spread your word to those who do not know you. And uh, God, just that you would be glorified in your church through these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our study on the Holy Spirit. Um, just by way of quick review, we've talked about the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. Uh, we've talked about the, uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit that we see as we go through the Old Testament. We've talked about the, uh, the Holy Spirit and his activity in the, uh, in the uh, conception and birth and, and life and ministry of Jesus. Um, this morning, we're going to start talking about um, the work of the Holy Spirit in the conversion of sinners. Um, it's a very important topic that we see in Scripture. Uh, the, the Bible tells us a lot about it. Um, but in order to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion, uh, we need to understand the condition of man in his natural and fallen state. That's a, just an essential part of what's going on with the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion is, we, is just to understand it's like, well, what's, what's our natural state? Why does the Holy Spirit need to get specifically involved here? Um, in the uh, in the redemption of, of sinners, the application of redemption. So we're going to look at um, various passages here. Um, one of the one of the the first passages we're going to look at here is Ephesians chapter two, probably familiar, especially if you've ever uh, studied this topic. Ephesians two, beginning in verse one, it says, "And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked." following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here Paul is describing uh, the state of people 
before being converted to Christ. And he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What what do you think Paul means by that when he says that they were dead in their trespasses and sins? And they obviously weren't physically dead, right? So what does he mean? Unable to come, like, un- unable to escape them, unable to even come to necessarily realization that they were mm-hmm. uh, sinning. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've kind of touched on a couple of, of themes that we're going to see in various passages we look at, um, but the inability and the and the lack of, of sight, basically, of the reality of the situation. Um, but yeah, they're the you know basically they're lifeless. They're they're just unable to respond. Um, you know when you think it's like if you if you go and you try to you know talk to a corpse and try to persuade it of something, you're not going to get anywhere. They just the the corpse is just completely unable uh, to respond, um, and that's. That's really the the idea that he's putting forth here. Now, is is this condition um, is this the condition of just some people? Is it just like a certain category of people are are uh, are dead? I mean, it's all those who are outside of Christ. Mm-hmm. We said uh, among whom we all once walked. Right. Um, and if I could add a little parenthetical real quick to that too. The fact that you're walking in it, that you're willing to walk in it, mm-hmm. that's it. Right. Um, that's where you are inclined, which is part of that deadness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Um, I mean, both of those are both of those are correct. Yes. Um, it it is. He's referring to you know basically all mankind prior to conversion, and he's including himself here. Like this is this is where you know this is where we all were prior to conversion. Um, and it is described as, I mean, yeah, even though you're dead, you're like inactive in terms of spiritual things. You're still walking. You're still choosing to do these things. Um, so your will is active, but it's active completely in the direction of your own selfish desires and rebellion against God. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's kind of where, where Paul starts out in describing the the nature of, of mankind apart from Christ um, and I mean obviously they're you know he's talking about the, these people that are they're living in sin they're they're just following the desires of their flesh um, John 834 um, Jesus there speaks about uh, people who are living in sin walking according to their own desires in uh, John 8:34, Jesus answered them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin." Now, what's what's the idea there when he talks about being a slave to sin? <clears throat> so they don't have the freedom to uh-huh. to just leave, right? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's the like that's the you know. Slave or free? I mean, that's those are the opposites, right? If you're if you're a slave, you're lacking freedom. You're basically forced to do your master's will, as it were. Um, and even though, as we saw in the other passage, you know, there's there's certainly a willingness there as far as like what their will is doing. But if they're practicing sin, they're they're stuck there. They're unable to um, to 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 in a sense do what they would do 
if their if their affections were right. They're they're trapped in that. They don't have the freedom to escape from the their master, which is sin. When we look at uh, Romans chapter eight, um, this is definitely a very important passage here. Um, Romans chapter eight. We're going to look at verses five through nine. Um, it says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind uh, on the flesh is death. And there we see, again, the idea of death. Um, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so there we see the, the Holy Spirit is being brought into this discussion as well. Um, so Paul here is talking about two types of people throughout this passage. Uh, what what are the two types of people that he's referring to? There's, this is actually like somewhat debated. There's different views um, on this passage, but I think it's I think it's really clear if you just look at what it says. It's those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. Okay, that's the the using the actual words. Yes, yes. I, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that because it's this is what it states. But what does that mean? Well, living according to the Spirit would really just be those who are walking uh, in the in God's will or in the will of the Spirit, whereas the flesh oftentimes, and I would say definitely in this case, is used to describe our sin or our sinful nature. Okay. And it's not just our sinful nature, but he's saying if you are in the Spirit, you will walk in the Spirit here. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we still struggle with the flesh, but he seemed to make a, 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 a more of a dichotomy here for those who are dead in their sin, as we've already talked, versus those who are alive mm-hmm. in Christ and right. in the Spirit. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I, I mean, that's specifically why I included verse 9, uh, is because he makes it clear there that basically if you don't fit into this category of, um, you know, not being in the flesh but in the Spirit, um, then you don't have the spirit of Christ. And if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. And so the people he's describing as being, uh, setting their minds on the things of the flesh uh, is specifically unbelievers. Um, it, it is quite popular to take this passage and view it as being Christians who are uh, just fleshly Christians uh, versus Christians who are spiritual Christians. Um, but I don't think that, that Paul... Um, really gives us that option. I think the way he sets it up here is that it is um, people who are actually Christians, people who have the Spirit of Christ, versus those who do not. Um, and so even though as as Christians, having the Spirit of Christ, sometimes we don't really feel like we're, you know, we're setting our minds on the things of the Spirit and, and walking in that way. Um, in the categories that Paul is talking about in this passage, um, you know, even in all our failings, we're still those who have the Spirit of Christ and who set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Um, 
So for those who live according to the flesh, what is their relationship to God? What does Paul say is their relationship to God? They're hostile to God and can't submit to God's law. Yeah, they're they're hostile to God. And then my next question was going to be, what's their relationship to God's law? And yeah, and the the answer is they can't submit to it. Um, and what's what's the significance of the word cannot? Possible. It's impossible, right? Um, I mean, that's that's really vital that we understand that um, that for those who are um, not regenerate, those who have not come to a, a saving knowledge of Christ, when it comes to the law of God, they simply cannot submit to it. They're completely unable to do so. Um, you say, well, you know, aren't there unbelievers who, who you know, who love and who do good things and um, and the, the reality is that what the Bible teaches us is that ultimately they cannot submit to the law of God. Um, they're just unable to do that. Yes, they can do things that, um, from a certain perspective, can be considered good things. Um, but ultimately, their, their hearts are in the wrong place. Their motives are in the wrong place. Um, again, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to suggest that, like, Christians, their hearts are always in the right place. Their motives are always in the right place. We still struggle with sin. Um, but, um, but if we're walking by the Spirit, we're, we're able to do things that are pleasing to God um, in some measure. But for those who have rejected God, for those who are going their own way, um, everything they do is just completely offensive to God. Um, it is in opposition to the law of God. Um, another passage that... Um, I, I don't. I don't want to completely leave this Romans passage. I'm going to want to come back to it. But there's another passage that has kind of similar ideas. First um, Corinthians chapter two, uh, verse fourteen. Uh, there it says, "The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned." So. In this passage, who's the natural person? Is this the same type of uh, same type of categories that Paul was working <clears throat> with in Romans eight? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is really the regenerate and the unregenerate man, mm-hmm. and the so the natural person would be what the world would call natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's yeah if, if they don't have if they have not been uh, if, if they're not if they've not been saved they're not uh, one with Christ they're not one with Christ but if, if they're not uh, one of the elect yeah the ways of the spirit are folly mm-hmm. right yeah so um, pretty much you know the the same type of categories of people here um, and the their relationship to the things of the spirit of God is they're not going to accept them, right? They don't accept spiritual truths. Um, and again, we see the phrase "not able," uh, which is very similar to the "cannot" from the the Romans uh, eight passage. They are not able to understand these things because they're spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit must be involved, or they're never going to understand these things. 
Now this puts mankind in a, a pretty dire situation um, prior to salvation. Uh, it puts man in a, in a situation where he, according to Romans 8, he, he can't submit himself to the law of God. He can't do what is pleasing to God. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 2, he's not able to accept spiritual truths. He, he's just not going to accept these things. He's not going to believe them. Um, I had a, a, an interesting conversation um, several years ago. Um, I was talking to my uh, father toward the end of his life, and uh, I was raised Church of Christ. That was kind of the, the position that we had uh, when I was growing up. And I mean, the Lord saved me um, you know, before, uh, before my dad died, and so we would often have uh, some very interesting conversations as I was trying to, to teach him um, what Scripture said about salvation, because from his perspective, Salvation was a, a matter of choosing to be obedient to God. It's just like, well, you look at what does God command me to do, and I choose to do that. And that's that's how I am made acceptable to God. And we were having a conversation one time, and these two passages kind of came up. I don't remember you know, exactly whether I brought them up or he brought them up, and I don't know if I remember the conversation exactly, but the conversation went something like this. Um, where my dad said, um, well, you just have to be willing to obey God. And I'd go to Romans 8, and I would say, well, you know, it says here, if you're in the flesh, you, you can't please God. You, you know, it, you, just, you just can't do that. You can't, you can't uh, just, you know, be willing to obey God. Um, and then my dad said, well, but if you, if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, then you'll be able to. Um, you know, which is, you know, it's... What you, the language you see there in Romans 8, you know, it's like, oh yeah, the, those who have their minds set on the on the things of the Spirit. And I say, well, but we look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and it says the natural person is not able to accept the things of the Spirit of God. So how does that work? And it's well, um, my, you know, my dad says, but well, but if you just if you just submit yourself to what God commands, uh, then you'll you'll no longer be the natural person who can't accept the things of God. And then I go back to Romans 8, and I'm like, well, it says, if you're in the flesh, you can't submit to God's law. And, you know, it's like we, we were having this conversation, kind of bouncing back and forth between these passages. And, you know, he was like, he didn't know where to go, and he's like, well, then who could be saved? Does that sound like anything? I mean, what do you think I, what do you think I quoted after that? Any idea? Mark chapter 10. This appears in, in multiple of the Gospels, but um, Mark chapter 10, um, verse 27 specifically, it says, uh, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, uh, but, or, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And just to, just to back up and give the, the context there, beginning of verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but he said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, "Who then can, or who, yeah, who can then be saved? Then, yeah, then who can be saved?" Sorry. Uh, and Jesus looked at them and said, "With man it is impossible, but with God, uh, but not with God, for all things are possible with God." So when we look at that, why were the apostles exceedingly astonished? 
It says they were exceedingly astonished when he when he told them um, about the the rich man and the kingdom of heaven. To a certain extent, it's because wealth was seen as a sign of God's favor towards mm-hmm. someone. Right. Uh, so if they can't even please God, right? What chance do we have? We're not as rich as they are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and like just the impossibility of you know when you think about the eye of a needle and a camel. I mean that's a pretty Extreme example. Um, a camel simply can't go through the eye of a needle. That's um, that's something that's impossible. And so they're like they're just astonished. It's like if a rich man, it's, it's that hard for a rich man. Who could possibly be saved? But uh, you know, and I think I think in a sense that this is Jesus's point um, is that the power of God is required for somebody to be saved. Um, this is something that we can't do on our own. Uh, the Holy Spirit has to come in and accomplish it. Um, and specifically, when I was talking to my dad, and we were like bouncing back and forth between these passages, and he's like, well, you know, who could be saved? It just just immediately jogged my memory of this particular passage, and um, and so uh, I quoted that to him, and then I think that was kind of the end of the conversation. Uh, but um, I mean, I think the Bible is just very clear on these things. Um, I'm going to look um, pretty extensively here at, uh, at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 brings up a lot of this information in a way that's, uh, I think, very clear and very hard to uh, avoid. And these, you know, these are doctrines that are um, often ones that people want to avoid. Uh, they often try to find ways to, uh, in some way, uh, make it where... Um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is is either not necessary or is not sufficient to accomplish um, our coming to Christ. Um, that really, you know, to some at least to some degree, it's up to man uh, to make himself acceptable to God. So, looking in John chapter six, beginning in verse thirty-five, um, Jesus said to them. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now we want to kind of uh, pick a few things apart here um, and try to understand what they're talking about. Uh, My first question is, uh, when Jesus speaks about uh, coming to him, what is he talking about there? Conversion. Conversion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anything more specific than conversion? When you look there um, in verse 35, Jesus says two things there. 
do those things look like they're they're parallel? I guess my I mean my next question was going to be, and so maybe this will kind of go into it. Um, when he's talking about hunger and thirst, is he is he talking about a physical hunger and thirst? What's that talking about? That's a tough one, huh? Basically, uh, I mean, he's, uh, he's trying to connect physical things to spiritual realities. Mm -hmm. And basically, you're going to want for nothing. Right, yeah. Spiritually, all things, you know, everything. We have every spiritual blessing in heaven places in Christ's success in Ephesians 1. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that is a good way to put it. So, but is is there like is is he talking about one thing when he talks about hunger and talking about something different when he's talking about thirst? No, no, it's, it's just it's just two different ways to describe the same thing, right? Um, so I think that when you look at that passage, um, whoever comes to me shall not uh, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I mean, I think you can draw the parallel there and say that the coming to him is basically having faith in him. That's the the idea that's being expressed there. Um, I mean, it certainly is a, is a part of conversion, but I think I think you could draw the parallel there that, that that's really what's going on, is he's talking about faith in him. He's talking about believing in him. Um, now, when we look at this passage, um, uh, it... Uh, we look at, at verse 37, um, and he says, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Um, so if we're correct in our interpretation of coming to me, um, it's basically saying all that the Father gives me will have faith in me. So there it's talking about an action of the Father. The Father is giving people to the Son. Um, do any of those who are given by the Father fail to come to Jesus? No, that's just like it's just right there in the text um, that all that the Father gives me will come to me. Um, that's the it's it's just inclusive. It's basically the giving of the Father is going to result in coming to Christ. And what is the relationship between verses thirty-six and thirty-seven? So verse 37, he's saying, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In verse 36, he says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. What does that have to do with verse 37? Anybody ever worked through this and thought about why, why he makes these two statements side by side? Nobody's jumping in there, so um, I, I, my interpretation, I think, and I think I've, I think I am correct. Um, always open to, to being corrected, but um, is that what's going on here is that Jesus is explaining their unbelief. Um, you have you have these uh, these people who they're refusing to believe in Christ. They're and um, they're saying, well, we want to see miracles. We want to see you make more bread. You know, you, you gave us some bread. 
on the other side of the lake, we'd like some more, please. You know, then, you know, once once we see that, then you know, then maybe we'll um, maybe we'll believe in you. So they're they're calling on him to uh, to, to to do things uh, so that they can so that they can believe. And so he's explaining their unbelief, um, which is I mean I don't I don't want to disparage the the fact that their unbelief is because they have chosen to reject God, but it's also because that the Father has not given them to the Son. Um, that there has not been that choice of the Father to give them to the Son, uh, and because of that, they are continuing to to reject. I mean, they're still again. I don't want to uh, say that they're not responsible for their rejection, but but it's it's ultimately grounded in the act of the Father. Um, now, uh, at the at the end of this passage, um, there's a there's a, a, a statement here that um, that I, I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of because it's going to be used again later. And in the later passage, sometimes people try to wiggle around what it actually means. Uh, but there in verse uh, 40, is that right? Yes, 40. Uh, he says, uh, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there, that, at the very end there, he says, I will raise him up on the last day. What What is that referring to? Resurrection. Resurrection, okay. Specifically, is he talking about the general resurrection of both the saved and the lost? Contextually, is that is that what he means by that? So you're shaking your head. Well, whoever believes in him should have eternal life. I mean, Romans uh, says, you know, wages of sin is death, but free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So mm-hmm. he's talking about resurrection to eternal life with Christ. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's talking about resurrection to eternal life in Christ. So it's it's not just like, yeah, you're going to get resurrected, and you know, and maybe you know, maybe you'll go to heaven, maybe you'll go to hell. It just depends. Um, so it's not just the general resurrection, but it's it's he's talking about I'm going to raise you up to eternal life with uh, with God. So definitely on the positive side of things. Now, um, jumping ahead to verse uh, 44, uh, Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day." So do you see any parallel terminology? between verse 44 and then the passage we looked at a moment ago in verses 35 through 40. One should stand out because I just pointed it out. It's a reverse of the statement in 37. Okay. Same, same concept, just said in the opposite way. Mm-hmm. Well, we see that terminology of I will raise him up on the last day. Um, but we also see... Um, I mean, we let's see. We see the, the 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 terminology of coming to me, right? No one can come to me again, uh, having faith in Christ. Um, now it's got uh, the 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 statement there. No one can, and again, that matches up with what we've seen before. Just the inability of man um, that man cannot uh, come to God in his. Um, in his natural state. 
Um, it does have a, um, a new uh, word here in the passage uh, where it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, what would, what would the word draw mean? Does it correspond to anything in the, in the previous passage that we looked at? What is it that the Father does back there? <coughs> Do you think that's a, a parallel to being given by the Father? Okay. I see. I see at least one head nodding. So hopefully you're you're following me there. So. Um, here we see, you know, being given by the Father, being drawn by the Father. Um, now, oftentimes people will look at this and they'll say, well, you know, God draws everyone, right? Um, sure, nobody can come to the Father uh, unless they're drawn, but then God just draws everyone, um, and then some of them actually come, um, and some of them don't, but all are drawn. Uh, does that is that the proper interpretation of this passage? Does God draw everyone? No. Sorry. No. No. Right. That is the right answer. He does not. Why do we say that? Is there anything in this passage that that helps us out there? If, if it is a pair of the, a, uh, equal to giving uh-huh. from verse 37, right? all that the Father gives me will come to me. Yeah. And God has made clear that he doesn't save everyone. Right. So. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, we can draw into this just the whole, the general idea. We know that God isn't going to save everyone. Uh, but yeah, the, just the, the having the parallel there between uh, given and drawn and the fact that we knew, we, we saw that everyone that is given to the Son by the Father will come to Christ, um, then it's reasonable to make the same connection. Is there anything else in this passage that should point us in that direction? What about that last phrase? And I will raise him up on the last day? So God draws everyone, wouldn't that be? And, and then we say that, oh, you know, he, he raises every, then he raises everybody up to salvation. That Wouldn't that turn it into universal salvation? So we know that can't be the correct answer. Now there are some who would look at this and say, well, um, it's not saying that he's going to raise everybody up for salvation, but it's just like he's going to raise everybody up just for the general resurrection. Um, you know, he's going to raise everybody up, and some will be some will be saved, and some will be condemned. Does that work? Any thoughts? Am I being too technical? With what you were saying, maybe it's just a few verses 
away. But what you were saying before with the previous sentence is, you know, it's the race to eternal life mm -hmm. is how he was using it just a moment ago. Right. So. Yeah, it would be very strange for Jesus to suddenly shift his use of the, the terminology of being raised up on the last day to be talking about the general resurrection when he was just using it specifically to talk about being raised to salvation. And looking a little farther ahead in John chapter 6, uh, John chapter 6, verse 64, uh, 64 and 65, um, Jesus says, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So we see uh, a repetition of the statement that no one can come to Jesus. Again, another statement of inability. Um, and here Jesus uses the word granted instead of drawn uh, for the Father's action. Um, and this also, I think, uh, reinforces the idea of man's inability, that it has to be granted by God, um, that man is just completely un unable apart from it being granted by God. Um, and then another thing that's interesting here is that Jesus says, this is why I told you. What is he referring to when he says that? It's like, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. What What is that that he's referring to? It's referring to earlier in the passage, but kind of what you were saying, it seems to be that he's explaining why it is that they're not believing. Mm -hmm. And it's leaving them with no excuse, but also keeping God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's it's giving them no excuse, but it is pointing to God's sovereignty and it's 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 an explanation of unbelief. Um, you know, it's like there are some of you who don't believe. Um, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted uh, him by the Father. And so only on the granting is somebody able to, to overcome their natural hostility toward God. Um, and so that explains why you have these people that they're seeing Jesus, they're seeing the Son of God on earth and the truths that he's stating, and they still just won't believe. Um, it's man's heart is so hard that apart from an operation of the Holy Spirit, he's just not going to believe. Um, we go back uh, to verse 45. Um, obviously, we read verse 44 a minute ago, but verse verse 45 it says it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Uh, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Um, so there again, we see the, the terminology of, of coming to Jesus. Um, and this comes immediately after the statement about the Father drawing people. Uh, but it says, uh, they will all be taught of God. Now, once again, that raises the question, does this mean that God draws all people? Does the label all be taught of God? Is that what that means? All who were called by the Father. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, it is all who were called by the Father. So 
It's a, it's it's all in a context, um, and uh, you know, and if you just consider Jesus's uh, interpretation of this passage from that he's quoting from Isaiah, he says, "Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me." So he's he's describing this being taught by God in terms of people who have heard and learned from the Father, which again is just parallel to the being drawn by the Father, being given by the Father to the Son, being uh, granted by the Father. All of these things are parallel. Um, and it's, again, it is limiting to these people. Uh, it's these people that, um, you know, that God in his sovereignty has chosen for salvation. Now we've looked at all this and we've seen, obviously, you know, very strongly the inability of man, but you might say, well, um, where's the Holy Spirit come into this? Um, you know, it's been, you know, it's talking about, you know, the, the Son has been talking about the Father, but we haven't really seen much about the Holy Spirit. Um, well, in verse 63, uh, John, or sorry, uh, uh, verse 63 of John 6, uh, Jesus does say, um, it is the Spirit who gives life. Uh, the flesh is no help at all. These words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, you notice the, the contrast there between uh, flesh and spirit. Um, and we've seen that in other passages we've looked at uh, already this morning. Uh, does it remind you of any other passage? I mean, specifically in terms of like things that Jesus has said? about John chapter 3. Let's, uh, let's look at John chapter 3, uh, verses 3 through 8. Beginning in verse 3 there, Jesus answered him, he's speaking to Nicodemus, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, uh, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, here we have Jesus uh, talking about being born again, being born of God, being born from above. Um, why does Jesus uh, contrast flesh and spirit here? Contextually, what's what's uh, what's going on that makes him want to contrast those? Does Nicodemus have a misunderstanding? He thinks Jesus is talking about uh, physically being born. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he thinks Jesus is talking about a physical birth. Um, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about an operation of the Holy Spirit. Um, he's talking about a spiritual birth, not a physical birth. And so he's got that contrast there. And it's very similar to what we see in John chapter 6, where um, you know they're very confused about... Can, you know, connecting things with the, the physical, the 
you know the the you know the bread and you know you know eating my flesh and drinking my blood and they're they're getting confused when Jesus is talking about spiritual things, uh, but um, it's you know it's similar here, uh, but Jesus is talking about um, spiritual things, and also you see here uh, that Jesus makes statements of inability, right? Uh, he says he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, man's state, apart from the operation of the Holy Spirit, is just completely unable to come to God. So, the Spirit has to come in. The Spirit has to come in and give the person new life, has to cause them to be born again. Um, he also has a, a very interesting uh, statement here where he says... Um, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what's going on there with his comparison with the with the wind? He's, he's talking about the operation of the Spirit, um, but he makes a comparison with the wind. It's basically talking about how you know you don't control the wind. The wind comes and goes as it wills. Mm-hmm. So it is with the Holy Spirit, and you don't see the spirit, but you see its effect. Right. You see the effect of the wind, you see the effect of the spirit on people's lives. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean that's an excellent summary of hitting you know both points there is that you know it's it's not in the control of, of us, it's, it's what the spirit wills to do and you don't you don't see it. You don't see the spirit acting, but you see the effects of the spirit. Um, and that's, um, I mean, that's what we see in conversion. Is like we can't see a person getting converted, but we can see the effects of that. We can see uh, their life uh, afterwards, and we can see that the Holy Spirit has worked there. I'm looking at the clock here, and I'm. I want to skip a thing or two here. Um, just quickly, um, John chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and 13. Uh, but to all who did receive him, uh, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Um there we see specifically, again, a discussion of the new birth. Uh, their people are being born again. They're, they're being born of God. Um, and it's not something that is a, just a matter of like of, of natural physical birth, of, 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 of blood. It's not of, of man's will, but it's the will of God. Um, it's, it's God's sovereign work um, in changing a sinner, uh, making someone who is completely unable to submit himself to the law of God, uh, completely unable to accept the things of the Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes in and gives new birth uh, and just changes the person to where they are willing to uh, obey the law of God, where they're, where they're capable of, at least in some measure, obeying the law of God and accepting the things of the Spirit. Um, and so, I guess just in, in summation of that, um, 
That's really what we see with the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Now there's some specific applications that I want to try to hit here in our last few minutes. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read verses 26 through 31. This is a really powerful passage here. Beginning in verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, this passage doesn't specifically bring up that it's the work of the Holy Spirit that does this in us, but it's still, it's talking about the same thing. Um, and you'll note here that it's really all on God. Um, it's not that we were really wise or we were really noteworthy in this world or whatever, um, but it's simply God choosing um, the, the weak and despised things and doing it for a very specific purpose. What is it? Why is it that that's... I mean, obviously God does save people who are very wise and wealthy and, and notable, but that's not the majority of the people he saves. The majority of the people he saves just tend to be um, just average folk, people who are not really anything special. Why is it that that's the way God works? Paul tells us the answer. Does anybody see it in the passage? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He's just he's taking away all ground of boasting. It's, I mean, if, if it was just like all of the like, you know, the the PhDs that you know became Christians, it's like okay, well those are the really smart people, so they were smart enough to figure it out and become Christians. That's just not the way it works. God saves saves people that you can't just look at it and say, okay, there was something special about them that made them decide that they were going to become Christians. Um, you know, I mean. A lot of times, I think in the American church, we have a tendency to think that's like, oh, we're really moral, spiritual people, um, and that's why we've decided to become Christians. And there's, you know, all those wicked people out there, and they just reject God because they're not as as moral and spiritual as us. Um, there's, there can be a temptation to think that way, um, but that's not biblical, right? I mean, when we think about the fact that we were in a state of just complete inability. Um, and it took the the power of the third person of the Trinity to come in and change us and turn us around before we would accept God. How should we how should we view our salvation? How should we view ourselves in light of those things? We should be really humble, right? It's like wow, I'm just 
you know, why, why God pick me? Um, I, I can't, I can't be proud of being a Christian. I can only be thankful of being a Christian and be proud of the work of God. That's what, that's what I should be proud of. I should be proud of my God, not proud of, of, of anything that I've done to put myself in this situation. And then I have to pick one here for the final point. Um, we'll go with we'll go with Titus three. Titus three verses one through seven. And again, it'll bring the Holy Spirit in here. Um, Beginning in verse 1, it says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, uh, and to speak uh, evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, we can see here, again, a lot of the same themes that we've talked about. Um, you know, we used to be in the, in the same situation. Um, unbelievers are described, you know, as just as being evil. Um, just slaves to, to their pleasures. Uh, uh, hating. Um, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's an ugly picture. But we have to understand that it's God who changes the situation, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the focus here. It was it was God who changed the situation. So when we interact with unbelievers, I mean, you know, before we were thinking about it, it's like, well, how should we view our own salvation? What about like how we should be viewing unbelievers? How should how should the the necessity of the work of the Spirit and salvation affect our view of unbelievers and our interaction with unbelievers. Any thoughts? They're, as you said already, they're dead in their sin, they're hostile to God, they're unable to do all those things, um, and therefore they need the Spirit, and specifically with that, they, they do, God uses us, Mm-hmm. God uses Christians as He makes it abundantly clear in places to spread the gospel. Mm-hmm. But they don't need just us. Like mm-hmm. we are incapable of right. They're not the place where we can convince them, if you will, to come to God. They need the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. Right? Yeah. But they also, we need to be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people because we, we were like them. Uh-huh. You know, and we ought to. Be patient, which this really speaks to our day and time, mm-hmm. political climate and, and all that. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, in a sense, they can't help themselves, right? 
I mean, it's it's so easy to be judgmental to people who are rejecting the law of God and who are just following their own way. And we don't want to like say that it's okay for them to be that way. Um, but but we need to understand that in a sense they can't help themselves. But the the answer is they need the Holy Spirit. And so obviously we can't give them the Holy Spirit, right? But what can we do? We can tell them the gospel, right? And God, in his sovereign work, uses the proclamation of the gospel. And through that, the Holy Spirit comes in and changes hearts of unbelievers to believe the truth. And that's not always going to be the case. A lot of times we're going to talk to people and they're just going to reject the truth. That happened to Jesus. We saw that. Um, that happens to us. Um, but in a sense, it takes a great deal of burden off of us. We don't have to worry about it. It's like, oh, well, I don't know if I should even talk to this person. I, I, I might just do more, you know, more harm than good. Um, I don't know if I can be persuasive enough. Um, it's like really our obligation is to preach the gospel and to trust God to do the work. Um, and we need to do it in a way where we are being gentle and respectful. One of my other passages here was from Second Timothy chapter 2, and I recommend you go look at that. It's another uh, great passage on the topic. Um, but we, we really just need to have like a winsome attitude but also realizing that it's not it's not our winsome attitude that's going to change them. Um, that's just what we ought to do. That's what God requires of us. Um, but God is going to work through us to convert those whom he has chosen out of the world. And so that's that's really what we need to, to focus on. Okay? Well, and with that, you, how he uses our he's sovereign, but he uses our actions within that too. We need to pray. Because that's how God has yeah. chosen. In other weeks, God has chosen to do this. And it's, it's recognizing our inability and the sovereignty of God. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will be Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's absolutely true. It's like, um, you know, if we're, if we're not praying, then, you know, in a sense, we're trusting our own efforts to try to persuade the person. Uh, but we really need to just really rest in the fact that it's God who converts sinners. And so we need to just be diligent to to preach the gospel to sinners and to pray that God would use that proclamation and that he would change hearts. So, and I'm, I, I apologize, I really ran over. Any, any, final, any final thoughts or, or comments? Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just um, we just praise you for your sovereignty. Uh, Lord, we uh, we thank you for the gracious gift of salvation that you have given to us that we're just so undeserving of. And Lord, even though um, every one of us would just naturally uh, reject you and go their own way, uh, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, have changed the hearts of your people so that we would turn to you, that we would uh, repent of our sin, that we would place our faith in Christ. And um, Lord, really all the glory goes to you because none of it is from us. We cannot boast at all. And uh, God, I just pray that we would continue to live lives of humble obedience by the power of your spirit, 
and God, that we would, um, just as we continue to worship today, that we would just have our minds focused on you, that our love would be directed to you, that our praise would be directed to you, and God, just we would recognize that all glory belongs to you. Lord, I just pray that you would do that in our hearts by the power of your Spirit, in Christ's name.